True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Welcome to True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to a Spotlight Minisode, in which we discuss cases that are currently in the media. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our newest Patreon supporter, Taryn Kazakis. Thank you so much for your support, Taryn. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show through Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave the links in the show notes. As always, any form of support is appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media are all great ways to keep the show growing and improving. Before I get started, I would like to tell you that the cases I'm going to be discussing today involve really horrific injuries to the victims. Please keep that in mind. The first case I wanted to discuss today had the media and public up in arms when it happened, and this attention only increased when a link to a previous highly publicized case was revealed. On the 1st of November, 23-year-old Jessica Weyers was reported missing at the Durban Central Police Station by her family. Jessica, the mother of a three-month-old baby, had left her home to attend an appointment in Smith Street, Durban, and never returned. On Monday, the 2nd of November, the media began to report that a body of an unidentified woman had been found at Inanda Sports Grounds. Social media immediately started to question whether this could be Jessica. Initial reports claimed that the authorities had confirmed that it was not Jessica. But by Friday, Jessica's mother had gone to identify the body and confirmed that it was indeed her daughter. The horrific revelations did not stop there, though, as it was revealed that Jessica's murderer had slit her throat and removed her hands. Jessica's boyfriend posted on social media that he felt as though he'd let her down because he'd failed to protect her. The public outcry has been muddied as well, by the knowledge that Jessica was working in the sex trade at the time of her death. It's unknown at this point whether the appointment she had that day was with a client or not, but I'm sure police will be investigating that angle. Jessica's family and friends have been supported by a non-profit organisation called Expose Hope. The organisation's Facebook page describes their mission as supporting those who are trapped in the sex industry in the city of Durban. Of course, as always, there are those commenting who attempt to place the blame on the victim because she was involved in a high-risk lifestyle. 
I was pleased to see, though, that most people saw just Jessica, a young mom who was making her way through the world and didn't deserve what happened to her. I've also been pleased to note that most news headlines have not described Jessica using her job as you would ordinarily see in such cases. In fact, if you Google Jessica's name, only one article on the first page of results describes her as a sex worker. The publicity around this case is likely as a result of Jessica being so young, killed in such a horrific way, and also because she has family that has advocated for her. You won't be surprised to hear that most murders or missing person cases of men and women in the sex trade do not make it to the media. Probably another reason that this case has been so highly publicised is because of a connection that was revealed shortly after Jessica was identified. A team of private investigators who worked on the Siam Lee murder case revealed that Jessica had been friends with Siam and she had provided investigators with information about the sex trade in Durban while they'd been investigating Siam's murder in 2018. As soon as this was revealed, of course, the conspiracy theories began. Even though Siam's murderer died of cancer in jail, it's long been alleged by some that this was a cover-up of some sort and that the man is still in fact alive, or perhaps he was not the real killer to begin with. The connection reignited those claims, with some saying that Jessica's murder was linked to Siam's. Police have denied that there is any connection between the two cases. Jessica Weyer's mother described her daughter as having had a hard life. Two years ago, her brother passed away at the age of 27 from a brain bleed while in hospital. The young girl was a huge animal lover, and she had two cats that she doted on. Recently, the cats were taken to the SPCA after complaints that she was not allowed to keep them in her apartment. Jessica's three-month-old daughter is now in the care of her mother. The removal of Jessica's hands makes this case very strange, and it could have been done for a few reasons. The amputations could be part of a fantasy for the killer, which, if this is the case, suggests that perhaps the perpetrator has killed before. It's not common for a first-time killer to dismember their victim, and it's usually something they work their way up to. The other possibility is that the killer was attempting to remove identifying features on Jessica in her fingerprints to make it more difficult for police to identify her. If that was the thought process, it's strange that they would have left behind several distinctive tattoos that easily identified the young girl. The killer also left Jessica in a very public place, and if he was trying to hide his crime, one would think that he would take her somewhere more rural. The area that Jessica was found in is about 17 kilometres from the Wheel shopping centre, where she told her family she was headed. This indicates that it's likely the perpetrator had a vehicle. Again, this presents the question, why leave Jessica where she could be so easily found 
if he had the means to dump her body in any of the more isolated and rural bush areas in KZN. Unless he wanted her to be found, and the removal of the hands had nothing to do with her identification being thwarted. Jessica left her home at 5.30pm. Sunsets in KZN around this time of year is an hour later at 6.30pm. I'm not familiar with the exact area that Jessica was found in, but it would be interesting to know whether there's any foot traffic around there at night. I would assume that there wouldn't be if her killer had enough time to mutilate her the way he did. Severing anyone's limbs from their body is not a quick job, unless you have some heavy equipment with you. The police do seem to be taking this case very seriously, and I really hope that her killer is found quickly, not only because Jessica deserves justice, but also for the safety of all the other women working in the area. On the 12th of November, 20 kilometres south of where Jessica's body was found, at a place called Cuttings Beach, a security guard made a grisly discovery. The severely decomposed body of a female was found having washed up on the shore. Reports claim that the woman's head, hands and feet had been removed and that she'd been disemboweled. The missing body parts and, and the recent discovery of Jessica's body had people immediately jumping to the assumption that this must be linked. While the possibility cannot be immediately discounted, it's impossible for anyone to say whether this woman's limbs were intentionally removed until an autopsy is conducted. The process of decomposition in water means that the softening of tissue, currents, the presence of marine life, and many other factors can cause injuries to body post-mortem. If the woman's hands and feet had been bound, for instance, when she entered the water, the action of the rope against her skin and the wave currents could have resulted in parts of her body becoming detached. This would take a long time, of course, at least a few months, but no one knows how long the woman had been in the water for. Lacey Peterson, the pregnant wife of Scott Peterson, who murdered her in 2002 in the U.S., was found with several dismemberments when her body was discovered in East Bay in Modesto, California. She had been in the water for almost five months and tied to a concrete block, and the autopsy determined that the dismemberment had been caused by a combination of decomposition, water currents, and the weighting down and tying of certain parts of her body. It's therefore not impossible that Cuttings Beach Doe experienced the same end. The disembowelment of the victim will also be assessed in the autopsy, as this too could have a biological cause. When the body begins to decompose, it builds up gas, specifically in the abdomen, which is filled with gut bacteria that help us to break down our food. The gas will continue to build and eventually need somewhere to go, and it's entirely possible that the victim's stomach had ruptured because of this, causing the disembowelment. Again, it's also entirely possible that all of these injuries were caused intentionally prior to her being placed in the water, 
but only a post-mortem will be able to determine that, and even then, the results may not be conclusive. Just when KZN thought that it had heard it all within the space of two weeks, the body of yet another young girl was found with horrific injuries. In Hammersdale, 40 kilometres from Durban Central, the body of 19-year-old Snegegulinda was found on the 16th of November. According to media reports, her heart had been removed and she had also been disemboweled. A cloth had been placed over her mouth. The girl's body was placed on a pathway where it would easily be found, and there was little blood at the scene, indicating that perhaps she had not been killed there, but rather just dumped there. Snegego's mother told reporters that her daughter had not been home for about 24 hours before her body was found. She mentioned that she had seen a stab wound on her hand the previous week, and her daughter had said that her boyfriend had caused the injury during an argument. Snegegu's boyfriend has stated that he was also looking for the girl during the time before her body was found, and that he was not involved in her murder in any way. He claims that the stab wound on her hand in the prior week was self-inflicted. It's also been revealed that Snegegu had discovered that she was pregnant in the days before her murder. While it's very likely that her boyfriend will be a major suspect to begin with, as would be normal in any investigation of this nature, the crime scene and the injuries inflicted to Snegegu are not only horrific, but rather strange. The covering of her face with a piece of material suggests if you buy into the common true crime narratives, that the crime was committed by someone that knew her, and covering the face was a way of hiding the ugly truth of what they'd done. Although there was little blood at the scene, parts of the girl's bowel were with the body, indicating that this injury at least was done in situ. It's not mentioned in any articles whether Snegegu's heart was left with the body or whether it was removed from the scene. The disembowelment could be linked to her having been pregnant, but that, of course, is pure speculation. If this was a domestic violence case, which remains to be seen, the removal of the girl's heart is extremely unusual. I do hope that police are able to track down this vicious killer quickly, as a crime of this nature makes me wonder how easily they may kill again. The last case I want to touch on is an update on the murder of Talip Peterson, which I covered in episode 30. Talip was murdered in a hit arranged by his wife, Najwa, in 2006. This week, a video started doing the rounds on social media of a man walking out of prison accompanied by a group of women and two men. The women are seen crying while they embrace the man and say to him in Afrikaans, Welcome back to the light. Social media commentators identified the man as Abdur Rasit Mjedi, the man who was convicted, along with Najwa, of killing Talib Peterson. Mjedi was sentenced to 24 years in prison, and the video shows him walking free 
after serving just 11 years of his sentence. Taleb's children and ex-wife expressed horror at seeing the man walking free as they had not been advised that the man was even being considered for parole. Initially, a spokesperson from the Department of Corrections claimed that it was not Mjedi in the video and that the man was indeed still behind bars. But two days later, they retracted that statement and confirmed that he had indeed been released. While it's not strange for him to have been considered for parole, as this is normal after a prisoner has served half their sentence, what is strange is that the victim's family had no idea he was being considered or that he'd been released. Now, we all know that the South African parole system is often confusing, even for people involved in making the decisions. But from what I could gather from the Department of Justice's website, upon sentencing of an offender, the representatives of the victim submit an application to the offender's file which states that they wish to be informed if the offender is considered for parole so that they may make representation. The form is available on the internet, and I would assume that having this form signed and submitted to the offender's file would form part of the advisory duties of the state prosecutor and their team, as no victim is going to know that they have to do that. That application then follows the offender around in their file until such time as they are being considered for parole, and then the person who has submitted the application on behalf of the victim or the victim themselves, will be contacted. It is, however, the victim or family's responsibility to ensure that their contact details are up to date so that they can be contacted at such time. Now, where the system fell down here, I don't know. But I'm pretty sure that Talib's family would have requested to have been advised. But they weren't. The department spokesperson has said that they are now gathering the details around MJD's release and they'll update the family. A prisoner continues to serve their sentence when they're released on parole and they do have to comply with certain conditions as set out by the parole board. Sometimes offenders will not be allowed to leave their homes except for certain necessary activities. So basically it's COVID lockdown level 5, but for the rest of your outstanding sentence. We do know, however, that very often crimes are committed by offenders that are out on parole. And while I tend not to think that Mjedi holds that kind of risk, he is now a completely different person than he was when he went in and will have to live a very different life. And that does pose a risk for reoffending. From the large group of emotional people who greeted him upon his release, it does seem like he has a decent support system. But that doesn't change the fact that his victim's family did not get to represent their father at his parole hearing. In similar situations in the past, we have seen victims make appeals and have the offender sent back to prison. But in most cases where this has happened, the victim has been alive and the charges usually involve sex crimes. In this case, I personally think that it would be highly unlikely 
that an appeal would be successful and all the departments of corrections would be able to offer the family, if they indeed admit fault, is an apology, which means very little, I think. Tzalip's children have grown into phenomenal adults since his death, and his ex-wife, who still deeply cared for Tzalip, supports them through their difficulties. I can only hope that the strength that they've shown throughout the years will be enough to get them through this new pain caused by the system that was supposed to protect them. And that is your Spotlight Minisode for the week. If you enjoyed this Minisode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the app you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a full case episode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon.